Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. Hey! This is Willie Ito, retired Disney animator, and you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome into another edition of Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, musician and longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. And you can email me, Aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, we got a fantastic show. I, you know, every week <laughs> I, I always say we have a fantastic show, but we always have a fantastic show. And I'm actually looking <laughs> forward to this as I do every week. I'm looking forward to our guests, but we have Ed Vodica, who is one of the um, Wurlitzer organists at the El Cap. And he's also a jazz musician a uh, film producer. We're going to talk about all of this stuff in the first of a two-part interview with Mr. Ed Vodica, and I can't wait to get to that. That is amazing. You know, uh, it's nice to have a fellow musician in there and uh, talking to Ed. We're able to chit-chat a little bit about, you know, his career and his projects, and he's just a fascinating individual, and uh, I think people are in for a great surprise here today. I think so too. And we pull the curtain back a little bit on these wonderful, you know, movie palace Wurlitzer organs and talk about those and, and, and really, you know, some, some sort of behind the scenes on how those things work. It's so cool. You know, I mean, you see, uh, you know, they're very rare for one, they're very rare, but it's amazing how these instruments mimic different uh different types of orchestral uh, you know things and how uh it really takes a lot of dexterity and discipline to play one of these things because it's not like playing a regular keyboard it's like you're using your whole body so it's pretty cool 
Uh, I mean, honestly, you have to be super schmat to really, uh, <laughs> you know, to really know how to use one of these instruments. I'm is, telling you. Is that a technical term? To, yeah, schmat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I have to say, it, it is literally like, you know, uh, you're using both feet, you're using your hands, you've got multiple keyboards, you got all these buttons and knobs. I mean, <laughs> my God, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. You're riding a starship it's crazy stuff but uh we're gonna talk to ed that's gonna be a lot of fun and then uh we have a bunch of headlines to talk about man disney is in the news just dominating not for the best reasons of course but we'll talk about that well you know what it runs the gamut from really good stuff to just oh my gosh this uh-huh. is still going on yeah i can't believe it but you know so the world turns but uh right now we do have a little bit of this it's always nice to have a little bit of Email. Podcast. Answers your email. Feedback is awesome, Dave. You happen to get some feedback from Facebook. You know, I got a really nice note uh, from Hugo, one of our listeners. I uh, sent it to me on Facebook. And, you know, last week I, I happened to call upon the hipsters out there to help bring back movies in the movie theaters, you uh-huh, know, uh-huh. just like they've done with vinyl records and cameras with film, you know, uh, and uh, Hugo sent the note saying, hey, I saw Taxi Driver, you know, the great Robert De Niro film classic. I saw Taxi Driver this past Saturday evening with my folks at New York's own film forum. Yeah. You may you may as well count me in the hipster circuit. Sure. Well, Hugo, thank you for being a hipster <laughs> and thank you for going out to a movie palace or a movie theater oh. and seeing a classic film. Yeah, I was, I, I, sorry, Hugo. I meant to give you the applause and said I hit the wrong track. Uh, on my on my little uh, my little deck here, but you know it, that's good. I'm glad he considers some part of the hipster circuit. Um, sure, you know you're bringing it back. And Taxi Driver is an all time classic. I think it's one of the American Film Institute's top ten uh, films. Yeah, I, of all you time. know that's a that that's really a film. I don't think I ever saw that in a movie theater. I right. would love to see that in a theater. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a classic. It's such a great film. Here yeah. in here in Nashville, we do have some independent theaters that will play uh classic movie nights, which is really cool. Um you know, it's great that and I used to go out there and see them too. So, it's really great. It's not a fathom event. By the way, it's not, but it's still really cool to see them in a the theater. And I know occasionally Alamo, um, Alamo House uh, Theater will will do some of these retro film nights, which is really nice. Yeah, I, I'm hoping they they become more and more popular. I mean, there's a lot of great classic films that I think are worth seeing on a big screen. Oh, for uh, sure. And I've I've said that for years now on this podcast. You got to see some of these films on a big screen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of feedback, we have one bit of, uh, you know, it's funny, you know, we don't get a whole lot of uh, Twitter comments, but uh, Nick Dos Santos, not to be confused with Rick DeSantis, <laughs> uh, had Ron, mentioned Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Nick. Uh, I'm, I'm just messing up all kinds of names today. But he said something like, loved both interviews you did with Bill Farmer. He's such a funny and lighthearted person. Continue 
uh, on the podcast. So we will. We will continue having funny people on the podcast and great people. Uh, and he would like to see us maybe uh, do some more voice actors like uh, Nancy Cartwright, Corey Burton, Mona Marshall, Bob Bergen, and, and much more. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's great. I mean, one of these days, you know, Nancy Cartwright would be a huge get because of the Simpsons and, and all that sure. stuff doing Bart and Corey Burton, you know, uh, works for Lucasfilm. He's done uh, so much work for Disney. Uh, I've met Corey Burton before. Dave, have you yeah. ever worked with Corey? Uh, I, I have met him uh, a number of times. I'm trying to remember. I may have worked with him once uh, many years ago. Honestly, yeah. I, I when you do hundreds and hundreds of projects, they start to blur together. Yeah, and Corey's been around the I oh, mean, yeah. he's been I around mean, the block. He's a legendary yeah. voice actor. He's done so much for Warner Brothers and Sony and Disney and Marvel and Lucasfilm. I mean, yeah. you know, he the theme parks, gosh, he's done so much of it. But uh he he is a fantastic person and uh, one of these yeah. days we'll have to reach out and get Corey because his career is amazing. Um, just like everyone else. So thank you, Nick. I appreciate that feedback. And, and you know, Al John, I, I'll, I'll just throw in, I, I regularly get notes from people on my personal uh, Facebook page, mm -hmm. uh, just saying that they love, uh, you know, listening to the show. Uh, there was lots of nice comments about the Bill Farmer interviews. And, uh, you know, it's just always great to hear from the listeners, uh, just letting us know how we're doing and what they're enjoying. Absolutely. I, I would encourage everybody to leave us those messages like I said, uh, the email's great, but we also have an ability for our listeners to leave us voicemails. Just click on the show notes and you can leave us a voicemail on Anchor FM, uh, or I'm sorry, Spotify Podcast. <laughs> Old habits die hard, Dave. Uh, Spotify Podcast. Uh, and then we can play it, your actual voice. I think it'd be really cool to hear some of our listeners' voices uh, in, in those comments. So please feel free to do that. That, that would be awesome. Yes, absolutely. This week in Disney and pop culture. I did it again, now, Dave. You, I did you, it you again. Did, Why do this, I do this, this like Dave? The third week in third a row. week in a row, I'm hitting the wrong button. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna have to talk to you. I'm I know. Have this, to, we're going to have to go to HR <laughs> conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I just leave that stuff in, Dave. You know, our <laughs> listeners like, why is Al John messing up every week and playing the wrong sounder? Why is he doing that? Uh, what have What have you been streaming this week, Dave? Well, I gotta tell you, you, you know, <laughs> from you know, honestly, I've watched a lot of stuff. I did watch a movie called The Mother the on mother. Netflix. The Mother, okay. The Mother on Netflix. <laughs> And uh, Al John, this is one of those films that I believe never, I don't think this ever went to the theaters. I think this was just released on Netflix. Uh, on Netflix. Yes. And uh, it was really. Uh, how should I say it, it, it was an implausible and, and laughable movie. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, I was going to try and be a little more diplomatic, but <laughs> this, this movie stars Jennifer Lopez. Uh, and the premise is while fleeing from uh, dangerous assailants, an assassin comes out of hiding to protect her daughter. She <laughs> left earlier in life. And I, I, 
all I can say is that, you know, if the movie has Jennifer Lopez in it, it it's generally not going to be a good movie because I don't think she's done a good, a, a great movie. Maybe the wedding I mean, planner just, was good. It just feels that way. Maybe the wedding planner was good. I enjoyed the wedding planner. I mean, the, you know, it was good. It, it, look, I watched this movie from start to finish and it was okay, but I found myself laughing at the dialogue and the premises and the, you oh. know, some of the scenes uh, were just, you know, completely implausible and I mean, detached from reality. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, this is billed as an action thriller. Right. And Jennifer Lopez is playing a Liam Neeson kind of character. You mess with my family. I'm right. going to come after you. I'm supposed to be this badass, you know, mom who is taking matters into her own hands and I'm going to get my daughter back. Right. That's kind of the premise. It is. And, you know, there's a decent cast in here. Uh, Amari Hardwick. Yeah. Uh, Edie Falco. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, Joseph. Joseph uh, Fiennes Fiennes, here. Yeah. You know, Ralph Fine's brother. Yep. Uh, look, it, I I kind of felt like it was uh it was two hours I would never get back. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, okay, yeah, that's all. And uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't like Baby the Lost Legend, <laughs> where I I could have shut it off. I I just had to watch the slow motion train wreck. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was that was the movie. Uh, so no, the real I question is the real question is Dave, uh, the mother or Cocaine Bear. Oh, I, cocaine bear uh, by far. <laughs> cocaine bear by far. If you're gonna, if is, you had a choice between those two movies, just spend spend the time to watch Cocaine Bear. See, it's more entertaining. See, cocaine Bear is the new uh, the new bar for for films like this. Is it is it like a train wreck you want to watch, like Cocaine Bear, or a train wreck you just you just want to just avert? Uh, and, right. and Dave just answered so, it. So there you go. I I. Uh, I think I mentioned last week I started watching Sweet Tooth, uh, yes. also on Netflix. Yes. Uh, that was season two. Uh, and I finished watching season two. Really enjoyed it a lot. Can't wait to see season three, mm. which they are coming out with. Yep. Uh, so Sweet Tooth, uh, highly recommend that on Netflix. Then I watched, I watched three episodes of a brand new series called High Desert on Apple Plus. Now, talk about a great cast. Patricia Arquette, Matt Dillon, Bernadette Peters, Kristen Taylor, Rupert Friend, and Brad Garrett. Wow. And the premise is Peggy Newman, a woman with a checkered past, makes the life-changing decision to become a private investigator following the death of her beloved mother, with whom she lived in the small desert town of Yucca Valley, California. Mm. Uh, director is Jay Roach. Mm -hmm. And you know that name. Yes. Uh, Jay Roach uh, has uh, directed a ton of films uh, over the years, including the Austin Powers Austin film Powers. series, yep. Meet the Parents, Dinner, with, uh, Dinner for Schmucks, The Campaign, Trumbo, and bombshell. Yeah, uh, you know he's he's a great comedic director. Yes. Um, and uh, this is th this is what what I'm going to say. I really enjoyed this. It's a very quirky, kind of kooky show, and <laughs> you know Patricia Arquette can be a very kooky person. Yes. 
and uh, I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, great actors, uh, lots of fun stuff going on. Uh, well written, well directed. Uh, again, it's quirky. If you like quirky, you're going to love this. Nice. Uh, I would I would highly recommend it uh, to our uh, listening audience. Uh, I also continue to watch Citadel on Amazon Prime, which is an action adventure uh, series uh, with Stanley Tucci. Um, I watched the final season of a marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime as well. Did you say the final season? The final season. Wow. As as far as I know, I think this is the final season. Wow. How about that? Unless they're coming back with one more, but I think, I think the season ends. Uh, with season five and I have to, you know, I, honestly, this, this is really one of those uh, shows that I really enjoyed. Uh, the writing was smart. Uh, the casting was terrific. The costumes, yeah. just the outfits that Mrs. Maisel wore in these episodes was just, I, really stunning, stunning art direction, stunning costumes, um, great cast. Uh, if you haven't watched The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I think you'd really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Ted Lasso, I'm keeping up on on Apple Plus. And uh, I watched the season finale of Last Thing He Said to Me on Apple Plus. Nice. And, you know, I I enjoyed that uh, 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 limited series. I don't know if it's a limited series. I don't know if they're coming back with a season two. It was uh, the last thing uh, he said to me is based on uh, a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a New York Times bestselling novel. Uh, and it was a great show. Uh, I want more. I hope they come back with a second season. There's mm-hmm. more more to tell on this story. But Jennifer Garner Garner did a terrific job, uh, and it was in a it was a very enjoyable show. So I recommend that. That's also on Apple Plus. Nice. I have a question for you, Dave. Yes. Have you ever forced yourself to just watch something other than you know Jennifer Lopez films? <laughs> just and just found it was a chore. I, I'm I I keep on hitting play on Dungeons and Dragons because they just started um, streaming it. Um, you can't you can't get into it, right? And I am such a huge Dungeons and Dragons fan of the the game because mm-hmm. I've, I've spent my life playing it. And every time I hit play, I just. I can't get through 30 minutes of the film. I just can't do it. I've tried it three times, Dave. I've tried it three times. I don't know what it is. So I will tell you that, you know, being a member of the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences, I vote on the Academy Awards, right? Uh So in years past, I would get upwards of, I don't know, 65, 70, 75 DVDs sent to me from all the different studios for Academy consideration. And, you know, it's somewhat daunting when you see a big pile, right? Mm -hmm. And there's certain periods around the holidays, like, you know, uh, Christmas, New Year's, when things really slow down, where, you know, instead of running out for, you know, uh, giant sales at stores or whatever, I would sit on the sofa and I would just put a DVD in and I'd start watching. And if that movie didn't grab me in the first five or 10 minutes, 
off it went, pulled the DVD out, went on to the next one. Mm-hmm. So from my standpoint, you know, time is valuable. And what we try to do with this segment is, is let our listeners know what's good and what's bad. And so there's some things I, I, you know, sit there and go, okay, I got to get through this so that I can at least tell the listeners to, you know, whether they should watch it or not watch it. Um, you know, the, the mother with Jennifer Lopez, you know, I, I, I didn't need to watch that entire movie. I typically would have shut that off probably 20 minutes into it and just said, this is a joke. Uh, Cause it was just terribly done. You know, it was like filmmaking by committee. It was, Oof, you know, yeah. most implausible uh, uh, setups and the dialogue was, was laughable, you know? So uh, but that's what I wind up doing, you know, throughout the year, because I consume so much content. I can't sit there and spend two, two and a half hours on something that is just God awful. Yeah. Uh, but there's certain things I'll sit and I'll watch, yep. you know, I mean, I sat and I watched Strange World. You know, and there was a number of times I just wanted to shut it off, but I watched it to the end and partly out of respect for the fact that I know so many people who had worked on it yeah. and it's a beautifully done movie, yeah. you know, beautifully, it's a beautiful looking movie, yeah. uh, but the story didn't grab me, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, I, I'll just go, you know, on, I can go on and on with those types of films. Uh, there were films uh, that I've sat in a theater and I just sit through the entire film. And every so often I'm looking at my watch saying, when is this torture going to be done? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but that's that's how I approach it. And that's kind of what you're going through. You're, yeah. you're trying to watch Dungeons and Dragons. You turn it on and you're like, ugh. Yeah, like I can't, it's, just I not, can't it's do hard. This. It's really hard yeah. because I want to like it. And it's got a, a great rating on IMDb, uh, IMDb at like a 7.4 rating. And I'm like, it's certainly it's going to get better for me. But it just really hasn't gotten me. So I may just give up. <laughs> um, but that's good to know, Dave. I appreciate that insight. I, I, I feel like sometimes we take it for the team because we want to review these films. And I can tell you that in the past too, I've been really disappointed at some of the stuff I've watched, and I just we just sit through it because it's it's something you know like light. I I am glad that I saw all of Lightyear this past year because yeah. it didn't grab me. But after watching it, I kind of understood like okay, yeah, some of the stuff was kind of shoehorned in. I get it, but it wasn't a bad film at the end. And I feel the same way about Strange Worlds, um, you know, with Disney. Um, it took me a little while to terrible, work no. Yeah, they're not terrible films, but but they're not films that you're going to run back and watch two, three, four, ten times. Which reminds you know? me, which reminds me, because I did a couple of rewatches this week, and you know, typically I don't mention the rewatches, but I have to tell you that uh, now I'm sounding like you. I have to tell you, Dave, that I know Toy I'm Story. Not to use that phrase, I, you know, <sighs> I'm trying to catch myself. I've been, you know, I I, I re-listen to the show every week, and I go, gosh, I'm saying that too many times. Oh, well, John, I've got to tell you, you know, well, I got. I'm, I'm trying not to. I'm just trying not to use that phrase. No, but but I'm doing the rewatches, Dave. And I'm rewatching this with the kids. I saw Toy Story 1, 2, and 3. You see, that's what I'm telling you. Like, I didn't watch a whole lot of new stuff, but I did some rewatches. And Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 is some of the most awesome, heartwarming films 
I, I it's better than every time I see them, Dave. They're better and better, and that's what I love yeah. about those films. And then I saw uh, Marvel's uh, Endgame and and Infinity War because the kids really just like seeing the action scenes. They love seeing yeah. Iron Man and Spider Man. So I'm watching it, going, "Dang it, this is good." It's yeah. so good, and it just broke my heart to see Chadwick Boseman on screen. It's like so much. I mean, there's so much, and I'm thinking to myself, this is what makes movies awesome for me is the rewatchability. Do I want to go back in and rewatch it and get a, a great feeling when I watch it? You know, I get that way when I watch Jaws or The Exorcist or uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or Citizen Kane or It's a Wonderful Life. Like these movies that I see over and over again, I just get great feelings watching it. And some of these films just miss the mark. And and you know, you know that's just one of those things that you, it's just hard to get over. And uh, I, that's a good discussion, Dave. I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and, and you know something that, but that's what movies are all about. Yeah. You know, when a when a movie really resonates with you, when it has a visceral, emotional impact on you, uh, those are the films that are successful in my book. Those are the films that make you want to see it over and over again. I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many times I've watched some of the Disney animated classics. Oh, yeah. You know, from Snow White. I mean, Pinocchio is like my all-time favorite from the golden age of animation. It's such a beautiful, beautiful film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, films like Bambi and and Dumbo. And, you know, even the fact that I had uh, worked on uh, the restoration of a lot of those films, uh, and and watch them. I mean, I honestly can tell you, I probably have seen some of those films, you know, 50, 70 times, 100 times. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I bet. Well, and it still resonates, doesn't it? They're still, still great resonate. films to watch. Yeah. They're just great films or great films. It's like a great song. How many times can we listen to, you know, the Beatles' Abbey Road from front to back and not go, wow, that's right. just an amazing record? Right. And and Revolver or, you know, just whatever one of the Beatles, you know, and name one, <laughs> name a record. And you can listen to it time and time again. Like I've listened to Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd more times than I can count. Sure. And uh, those things just resonate. They're good. So good discussion, Dave. I think one of these days you and I will have to do a, a show where we just discuss some of our top 10 films not necessarily disney but we can just talk about our top it's, 10 films it's, it's so hard though it's so hard oh yeah it is to but you know that's why 10 because there's so many films that <laughs> are, are like you know just my top 500 you know oh i, mean? I know it's but like, you know what that, those those are things i think our listeners would want to hear and have us tell some little tidbits about our personal experiences with these films and why they resonate with us i think that'd be really cool let me ask you this question because yeah. you're a musician yeah what is your favorite film film score uh favorite film score i think it's a toss-up i think it would probably have to be star wars by john williams the original star wars and it's just because it resonates with me after that it could it could probably be alan silvestri back to the future trilogy Okay. Back to the Future. And I'm a big fan of Alan Silvestri. And then after that, uh, maybe Star Trek, the motion picture. And I think that's, I want to say that's James Horner. but uh, Or Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, actually. Um, 
now I'm going to have to look it up just to be sure. But um, yeah, I think um, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good uh, thing, Dave, you know, but I, those are the films that resonate with me. And I think because they resonate with me, part of the, the part of it resonating with me is the music. So um, there you go. I think that's uh, let's see sound department, special effects. I'm just music department and music editor. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to uh, James Horner uncredited. Yes, I'm right. I'm right. <laughs> it's nice when I'm right, but uh, there you go. Uh, it was a, uh, the conductor composer was Craig Huxley too. So I think there's in, in there, Craig Huxley and, and, and Horner had uh, done stuff together for that. So anyway, there you go. Well, I, I, I'll just throw in my all time favorite movie score Yeah, is uh, from Lawrence of uh, Lawrence, Lawrence of, of Arabia. Arabia. Yeah. yeah. Lawrence yeah. of Arabia. It's uh, pretty it was amazing. Composed by uh, Maurice Jar. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing score. Yeah, it's it's just one of my all time favorites. I have others, you know. Out of Africa is another great score. Oh yeah, know. oh that's a great uh, score. And, and by the way, I completely agree with you. All of the John Williams scores are just are beautiful. Gosh, and, aren't and they? they? And they like you can't separate that score from the film. No, no absolutely know? not. And uh, it just goes to prove that George Lucas, too, with his longtime collaborator and John Williams chose wisely an organic symphonic resonant classically driven, you know, piece instead of going with heavy synthesizers of stuff or stuff that he could have gone with in the day. Um, he went with something that was more cinematic, more akin to what he wanted out of Flash Gordon serials. And I really like that cinematic sound. And John Williams just delivered on all every sense of the word. And actually everything John Williams has ever touched has been amazing. E.T. Yeah. soundtrack, you know, this Harry Potter. I mean, his hands are in everything. Indiana Jones, of course, Superman. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on. We could all anyway, right. we're gushing. Uh, the last yeah, thing we I, should move on. I, and I have to tell you, we could do uh, an entire episode just on film scores and have some guests come on to talk about scoring you know, movies. Oh, and certainly. Maybe, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll get our friend Mark Waters back. I'd love Bruce to get Broughton, Mark. Yep. Bruce Broughton or yep. somebody, you know. I'd love to. Hey, really quick. I did see a movie I saw missing on Netflix. And? It, it's good. It's okay. good. It's an internet uh, sleuth movie. Uh, missing mom, daughter goes try to find her, and it's shot from the perspective of a webcam. So everything you do, she's doing and researching and finding all these little threads is done on a laptop screen. It's a it's an interesting experience and one that resonates with people. It's rated very high, highly. So missing on Netflix, check it out. All right. All right. <laughs> now it's time for this. Rock podcast. This week in Disney and pop culture. Oh my gosh, Dave. I I wanted to say I wanted to say that um I I wanted to say that this experience would live forever, but I could see the writing on the wall, Dave. They're closing down at least for now Galactic Star Cruiser over at Walt Disney World. What are your thoughts, you, Dave? You, you know, when I saw this article, uh, my first uh, thought was, uh, I don't look at this as a failure. 
some people, you know, are kind of down on it. Like, you know, oh, they're closing it. It, it. You know, it was too expensive. This, that. All right. Look, the pricing issue is the pricing issue. Yes. You know, $6,000 for two days for the experience is a little bit much for people. And and I think it was sad that there were some people who went into hawk. You know, they they had credit card debt to go do this, you know, uh, which I think is, is awful, but, uh, this was an experiment in, in a, a, uh, uh, you know, a, an immersive experience, uh, that I think was highly rated. It was critically acclaimed, but I think at the same time, they couldn't really get it into a pricing area that would be palatable for a larger group to sustain it, you know? And, uh, but kudos to the company for doing this and for experimenting with this kind of an experience. And, uh, you know, hopefully they've learned a lot from this and they're going to apply it elsewhere. I don't know what they're going to do with this hotel. I mean, it, it was a hotel, right? Well, it is, it yeah. is. And I have ideas, you know, I you, feel, yeah, go ahead, Dave. I, I was just going to say, they're not going to just close the building down no. and mothball it. Right. They're going to repurpose it. Right. Yeah. So wouldn't it just be like a stars, star Wars hotel, like a regular hotel without all of the cast uh, and creatures and, and whatnot that they were doing. I think they can still do all of this. I really yeah. do. I think they can still do it. They may be able to to back off some of the other interactive elements, but I think they can still have cast members in costume in certain areas. I still think they can use it as a, a great hotel with typical transports to and from, you know, to break from, you know, if, if they want to continue to do the, uh, the, the shuttling of people back and forth between that and Star Wars, uh, Galaxy's Edge. But I think they need to tweak it. Uh, I, I feel, first of all, firmly believe that, yes, Disney should be applauded by doing these type of interactive experiences. I balked about it because they promised these type of experiences to the general public, and then they put it behind a paywall. That was not good to me, like as a consumer, like you're promising me to live my own Disney adventure. And then you don't do it when you roll out galaxy's edge, but then you put it behind a paywall. Like that's not what you promised me. And then to realize that in the paywall, you get these cool interactive experiences, but then it was nothing like the interactive storytelling. And I really had something else in mind for that, where it was a little bit more casual and not as structured. Um, So this was a different thing, but I think they can do it. And I certainly think they can open up the restaurant to, to monetize those sections because I think a lot of people are uh, interested in eating at the restaurant and seeing the entertainment and seeing the different shows. So I think there are different ways they can do it without, you know, you know, and monetize it because I think there is some learning to be had there. And I think they're going to continue to use that as a test bed for these different experiences. Uh, And I think it's also a test bed for other parks like universal. This is what Disney did. It didn't work out. And maybe the next time, since we're rebooting Harry Potter, we can do something really cool like that. You know? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear your take on it. And I was kind of down on it. It made me sad, but now I feel like they can use it as a learning experience. So speaking of uh, learning experiences, how about this? Disney asked Florida judge to dismiss the suits board as moot. Um, 
this is just this is just back and forth. There, there's another headline we uh, <laughs> that I saw come across yesterday, uh-huh. uh, where uh, DeSantis is asking that they remove the federal judge that's overseeing uh, one of the suits against him uh, because he had voted favorably for a free speech uh, case against the governor before. And so, you know, DeSantis wants to remove that judge from uh, from a Disney lawsuit. So this is just all legal wrangling. It's a nuisance. Um, DeSantis won't let it go. And this is hurting his political uh, aspirations in my book, because all I can say is, can you imagine him engaging another country this way and just keep escalating and escalating? You know, he'll escalate us into World War Three for crying out loud. So my thing is, who's going to be the bigger person? And I think Bob Iger should reach out if he hasn't already done so to do a face to face with Ron DeSantis and say, hey, can we just work this out and let's just let's just move past it. Can we move past it? It's hurting business. It's hurting, it's hurting our employees. It's hurting the the state of Florida. Let's just kind of let's move past this. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, someone has I, to be the adult here, Dave. I, I realize that. And our next story is Disney scraps the Lake uh, Nona, Florida campus amid <laughs> DeSantis feud. So there you go. There's a, a billion dollar project that Disney just said, yeah, we're not going to do that. Oh, come so they're on. not yes. going to build the campus and the 2000 employees that they asked to move to Florida don't have to move, even though a bunch of them moved already. Yep. Uh, so they're going to have to work that out uh, and uh, and help those people that moved down to Florida. What it's a crazy. cluster. What a cluster. Yeah. It's terrible. I mean, these people that got laid off or, or decided to look for other pastures because they were asked to move. Now they don't have a job with Disney, maybe a company that had, you know, they've been with for many years, maybe even decades now. And then this whole, this whole thing was just a horrible move to begin with. But anyway, I feel sorry for those people affected by it because that's just not good. Uh, I know I had a friend move out of Lake Nona and, uh, and, you know, because of this whole situation. And now they're like, uh, I just uprooted my whole house in my life. And now this is not happening. <laughs> so I'm like, Hey, yeah, I, you I should wait until as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just crazy. It's, it's crazy. All right. So Dave, the world of Hulu and Disney plus, uh, I guess is going to start merging in some way, right? It's going to, they're, they're not going to sell Hulu from my understanding, Dave, but they're going to kind of merge the services together. Uh, and it looks like they're in part of this, they're going to be removing a lot of their shows uh, from Disney plus uh, they're going to write off nearly 2 billion by removing underperforming titles cut from the streamers. Um, that's a lot of stuff you're looking at. Disney's well, yeah, but you yeah. know what this is all about? This yeah. is all about them reining in costs and saving, as this article said, $2 billion over time. You know what they're saving the money on? By taking it off the platforms, they don't have to pay the residuals. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening here. So they're targeting. It's not so much the shows, you know, and who's viewing those shows. It's more about how much do they have to pay out in residuals. Of course. When they run those shows on the platform. So by taking them off, they don't have to write out those checks. So that's where they're saving their money. Yeah. And that's really what this is all about. This is all about reining in costs and making 
the streaming services profitable, yep. which is what they need to be. Yep, absolutely. They the, can also the arm, then license. I was, I'm sorry. I said they, the arms. The arms race is over. Is yep. uh, you know the streaming arms race. Yes, it, it certainly is, and there's more uh, shifts that we're going to talk about. But uh, I think when they take off these shows. They can also license these shows out to other platforms as well so that they can monetize those. And who's to say they can't bring them back for certain runs as well, just like Netflix or anything else that they do. So it is uh, one of those things that uh, we're going to keep an eye on for sure. And and, and that's exactly what's going to be happening. Uh, yeah. all, of, all of the platforms are going to start licensing to third parties. Uh, they're looking for uh, to, to bring their costs down and increase their revenues. Yep. Speaking of streaming wars, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav says it's time to bundle more streaming services together that on the heels of the Disney and Hulu uh, situation kind of bundling up and and, and uh, coming together as one solid entity, I believe, hopefully by the end of the year. Uh, Dave, it is over, is it not? The streaming wars. It's like this is this is oh, what I we've hit. We've hit. Absolutely. We've hit the. We've hit the the edge. The the breaking point. Um, you know, and I think you're going to see that with Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, we'll probably see the same for NBC, Peacock, Universal. We'll see uh, some other streaming services come together. Um, and I'm I'm curious to see. You know, maybe Universal and Apple will reach a deal if Disney and Apple don't come together at some point. Uh, I, I feel like uh, I, there's got to be more mergers that, happening. I think that the arms race is over in streaming. And I think we're going into a period where we're going to see uh, belt t- more belt tightening, more consolidation. And I think some mergers you know, so, some, you know, uh, some serious uh, mergers because there's a lot of smaller uh, streaming channels out there. They're not going to survive on their own. They're, they have to either be merged or bundled. Uh, and so we'll see that, that that's the period we're going to go into. I'd like to see, you know, something happen with AMC. You know, AMC yeah. Plus has got some anchor shows. And I think you look at these streaming platforms and you look at what their anchor content is, like Netflix and Stranger Things or so many other things. You you just look at uh, AMC and the, the Walking Dead series and you go, where can those be really good homes? And I think you're going to yeah. find that those things are going to start coming together. Absolutely. New movies in the pipeline, Dave. The uh, trailer from 20th Century Studios, also Disney. Uh, called The Creator is out. It seems like there is a uh, fight for our very existence. It is the, <laughs> I was going to say the age-old story, but it's not really the age-old. It's decades-old story of AI versus humanity. Uh, a different uh, peek into what Skynet would look like as the, creators hit the, as the creator hits theater September 29th. Dave, this trailer looks amazing. It was very timely with all the talk of AI in the news. Yeah, I have to say, I watched this trailer and then I had Nancy come in uh, and watch it and she was freaked out by it. She's like, oh, my God. She goes, how timely is this? You know, it's really timely, so, but it looks yeah. amazing, Dave. Like the, the actors look good. The premise looks good. It's kind of one of those stories that you've heard before with a new twist. And I can't tell you how lovely this movie looks. It looks amazing incredible ever- I, I can't wait to see it it's it's just incredible looking the trailer was fantastic 
as a trailer should be. Yeah. I watched that trailer and said, I've got to see that. I got to see this and movie. That, that trailer worked, man. And it's big in scope. And I really like it because it, it just immerses you into how big this world is. It's a big world. And I think with films like The Terminator and Megan and Ex Machina, which, by the way, is a great movie if you've not checked it. Have you ever seen Ex yep. Machina? Yeah. Yep. So good. Yep. This is a great film. All right. And speaking of not so great films, uh, let's move into, you know, the the Blood and Honey Winnie the Pooh horror movie. Dave. <laughs> okay. Yes. I have it marked on my, my watch, to watch list, and I have just really tried putting it off and putting it off. But I think it's going to get to that point where I'm not going to put it off any longer. It looks like there's a Bambi slasher adaptation from the same makers of the Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, and it's a deer Bambi film. Bambi the Reckoning. <laughs> it's going to be a deer film in the vein of Cujo. No, tell me it ain't so, Dave. The, the film will feature a mutated killer deer <laughs> in the vein of Cujo. There you have it. Uh, you know, what What do we say? I mean, I can't say much more than that. Other than, you know, uh, when they made uh, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, it was after the original A.A. A. Milne Winnie the Pooh book uh, fell into public domain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the Bambi book itself has also fallen into public domain. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and hence they're able to make this film. Uh, I have not seen Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Have you? I'm going to this week. I got okay. to. I got to see is it. it. On, is it on one of the streaming services? I think it is. I, I don't know which one, but I, I marked it okay. on my IMDb right. page. So well, I'm going to seek go. it out. I'm going to seek it out. All right. <laughs> Blood. Now, so, uh, the, uh, you know, I, I don't want to spend any more time on Bambi the Reckoning. I mean, these movies are crazy. <laughs> uh, but I will say the the uh, there's a new trailer out for Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One Ugh. with Tom Cruise, uh-huh. and it's unbelievable. It's a great trailer. Uh, you get to see the finished shot of him going off of a cliff uh, on a motorcycle. Yeah, I, I mean it's it, it's just unbelievable. Um, apparently, and I've seen some behind the scenes. You know, the stunts just kick his butt because he does like to do his own stunts, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. It's just amazing to me. And here's a guy that's, uh, you know, Tom Cruise, who's very divisive. And I can tell you that I, I can't for the life of me, I I cannot like this guy's movies. They're really good movies. I, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but he he brings me back to the box office. I have to t- tell you. Hey, listen. I don't care what people do in their personal lives. Yeah, I'm watching the movie. Yeah, it's they're, good. It's good movies. They're inhabiting. They're inhabiting a character, <laughs> and in a film, and and that's what I'm there to see. Right. Right. You know. Right. You know, if he wants to do other stuff on his own, you know, outside on his personal life, that that's his business. I I'm actually separating the art from the individual. I've I've had to do that as well. That's another interesting topic, but now this is great. You know, Archer is a, to me, an underrated series because it's got great cell shaded animation. It's got quirky, witty characters, great writing, and it's coming to an end with 14 seasons. I cannot believe it's been 14 seasons on FXX. And the final season kicks off August 30th. Dave, you've seen Archer. I love Archer. I've watched most <laughs> of the seasons of Archer. I think Archer is fantastic. 
Uh, it's an awesome series, uh, uh, adult animation at its finest, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Uh, great voice cast. Uh, oh, yes. I, uh, I, I'll be curious to see what they do once they end it with season 14. Are they going to do some Archer movies? Uh, because I think they should. I hope they do. I hope they do some Archer films that are just, you know, that much more, uh, you know, over pushes, the top. Pushes the boundaries. Uh, pu- yeah. Push the boundaries. Yeah. Uh, but I te- I have to tell you about this, this um, article that I sent to you uh, about the premiere dates for Archer's final season. Uh-huh. It also talks about Justified. Oh and yeah. The return of Justified, Justified the City. Wow. Uh and I cannot wait to see that. I have to tell you, uh <laughs> I was such a fan of Justified. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, for from my standpoint, Justified City Primeval debuts July 18th with two episodes at 10 p.m. Uh, and also, by the way, Reservation Dogs yeah. is coming back with season three. That go. was a really terrific uh, series. Yep. Uh, so far, Reservation Dogs, uh, really well done. Waitiki, a yeah. uh, friend uh, from New Zealand, is involved in Reservation Dogs. Yes. Yeah. Taika Waititi, good stuff. Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi. So anyway, uh, yeah. but uh, th- I think that uh, I'm excited about Justified City Primeval. That's good stuff right there. It's nice when you have a, a bunch of streaming services and you have all this great content to devour. I just don't have time for it. But yeah. It's great. Uh, in our regrets for this week, John Rafua, did I say that right? Uh, editor on the Avatar films dies at the age of 58. So young, Dave, this guy. So, so this was very sad. Uh, he had some rare cancer and it was Oof. just, it's always terrible to see people go too early. Uh, but it was worth mentioning because he was involved in some uh, really uh, incredible films as an editor, including collaborating with James Cameron on an, on the Avatar films. Yeah, absolutely. He's done TV. He's done films like Olympus has fallen, Magnificent seven remake, and he will be missed so young, so young. Yeah, yeah. Um, and someone that's had an amazing life, and it's hard to believe he was 87. Jim Brown, NFL legend turned action Hollywood hero, dies at the age of 87. Uh, we know him from the Cleveland Browns. He started in the Dirty Dozen, Ice Station Zebra. Um, you know, what a great guy. And I remember growing up with Jim Brown. And, uh, you know, rest in peace. He's 87 years old. What a life. I, I mean, he had an incredible life. And I, I, I must say about his obituary when I was reading it, I was really blown away by, you know, he really was a football legend. But I really sort of when I heard that he had passed away, I didn't flash on football. I flashed on his movie career. Yeah. I mean, uh, he had a he was very prolific. He was in like 40 movies or something. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I know him more as an actor than as a football star. I know. Right. Uh, in 88, Brown founded the Amer I Can program, work with gang members to empower them to take charge of their lives and achieve full potential. So that alone is Hall of Fame worthy. Uh, and he belongs up there. What a great guy. Gave back to the community. An amazing entertainer, Jim Brown, and professional athlete. What a what a tremendous life. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, professional athlete, athlete, um, uh, actor, uh, activist, activist. Uh, yeah. you know, he, he really was out there giving back uh, and he did have an amazing life. 87. Wow. Absolutely. RIP Jim Brown. Yes, sir. Well, now we move into the meat and potatoes of this show. Ed Vodica, amazing musician, wonderful story. And sit back and relax. Dave's going to be talking to him right here on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we've got a fantastic guest. And I, I got to tell you, I've been looking forward to this for several weeks. We've got Ed Vodica, who is a jazz musician, a film producer, uh, Wurlitzer organ whiz, uh, any number of things. And Ed, I want to welcome you to the Skull Rock podcast. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, Ed, I I really am fascinated uh, by musicians. Uh, I've worked with a ton of musicians over the decades uh, doing recording sessions, uh, but I uh, unfortunately have a tin ear. So I love talking to musicians and asking tons of questions. And and one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, how did you get into music? Because I read your bio and, and it mentions you started playing the accordion and uh, at a young age. Yeah. And, and you can't hold that against me, but that's the, you know, with a, with an ethnic name like Vodica and being from Chicago, uh, you, it was, it was an obligatory thing. You, you were born with, you had to, you were assigned an accordion when you were born. <laughs> and uh, so I started, I started playing that uh, when I was in kindergarten and uh, received one from my folks for my birthday. And, uh, then when I was 11 years old, I switched over uh, for a series of, of interesting reasons, I guess, uh, sort of against against my choice, switched over to the organ. And uh, within a couple weeks of, of, of taking lessons on that, um, just a whole different uh, world open up to me rather than the world of accordion literature and stuff like sort of pop music and pop harmonies. And I was just at that right age to absorb all that right teacher, you know? Uh, and so I, when I was 11, switching over to organ, uh, within a few months, I started working in the music store um, where I was taking lessons and uh, the rest is, I mean, I hate to use that cliche, but it pretty much is history in that I've been working ever since, and uh, f with a few exceptions, the phone hasn't stopped ringing for one reason or the other. Hey, and you, you do, you do studio work as well as live performances. Uh, yes. And, and um, uh, I guess I've got a ton of questions here, and I'm I'm sort of filtering through this. But one of the questions I want to ask you is. What's the difference between an organ and a piano? They both have keyboards, and I, it seems they're interchangeable, but there's a difference. Yeah, there, there is. Uh, first of all, the piano has, of course, one keyboard, uh, 88 notes. Um, it's touch sensitive, so the uh, harder you hit it, the louder it plays. Um, you have a sustain pedal on it, which allows you to hit uh, a bunch of notes and let them ring. Um, and you and you can then cut cut that off or or let that ring longer. Um, um, but, but the biggest thing is the one keyboard and the technique being that they're touch sensitive. So you you just you have to have 
a certain amount of, of chops um, to just execute things cleanly on the piano. The organ, on the other hand, has usually a, a minimum of two keyboards, uh, and they are not touch-sensitive keyboards, so they all weigh exactly the, uh, take the same amount of pressure to play. Um, and the volume and any articulation comes from from an actual pedal, you know, from a volume pedal. Um, and they have a set of bass pedals on it. So it's usually at least two keyboards. Usually those are 61 note keyboards, so not quite 88 notes. Uh, and then either a 25 or 32 note pedal board. Um, spinet organs have usually traditionally used to have 44 note keyboards and a 13 note pedal board, like one octave, and they're sort of short. And when you get up into a 25 pedal, <clears throat> excuse me, they're long, um, and you can play with both feet on, feet on it. And then a full console organ has 32 uh, pedals, bass pedals. So um, they're really, in many respects, other than the keys being the same, there's not very much that's the same about them. Okay. Certainly so, in the same way. Now, you know, I, I grew up in New York and I, you know, in the heyday of shopping malls, you'd walk down the shopping mall and you'd see the organ store. You know, there, there, there'd there be a store that sold That's pianos it. and organs and there was always somebody sitting there playing. And I, I've always been under the impression that there are some of those home organs just had one keyboard. The uh, later on, uh to appeal to the mass market which is about when i got just a little after i got into the uh the business um the retail business and then when i was as, a, as an aside to this when i was 15 i was hired by the manufacturer that that uh, of this of the products at the store i worked at con organ corporation um and um, would travel and, and, and do concerts and sales seminars and all kinds of things for them. But um, the one keyboard instruments were meant to be really mass market friendly, to get people on an impulse buy, to get into the concept of the organ, and then uh, hopefully step up from there. Okay. So, so there was this sort of beginner model that just yeah. had a single keyboard that if you mastered that, then you, you would move up to two keyboards. Right. And, and, and pedals. And, uh, um, also, also the, um, the, those usually had some kind of automatic, it's when technology came around enough to have automatic accompaniment. So not only would it have drums, but it would have where you would hold like one note or just hold a chord, a triad as, you know, of a C chord or something. And it would play some kind of accompaniment strumming sound and some kind of bass pattern or something like that with drums. So uh, it lets you sound like you were able to play more than you actually could. And, and from a difficulty standpoint of learning how to play, is it more difficult to learn how to play an organ if you're using multiple keys, keyboards or. Uh, that's always, that's always a big um, question because you're talking about to, to you get, you have a lot more stuff going on. You, you've got um, the two keyboards doesn't make it difficult, more difficult, but the bass pedals can, because then you've got the coordination of your foot 
and the left hand like providing the accompaniment and the right hand providing the, the melody. Uh, but it's easier because it doesn't require any technique, technique like the piano does. And also um, you can get a lot more sound out of, an, out of the organ than you can out of the piano. I mean, to get a big, full, rich bass and chord and melody thing on the piano, you have to really be stretched out over quite a few keys, uh, octaves, and uh, voicing chords subtly. It, so I would say that organ, even though there's more to do on it, it's, it's an easier instrument to sound better on quickly. And, and the, does the electronic synthesizer, does that somehow fall between an organ and a piano? Or It, it really is what an organ was trying to be. I mean, originally, uh, pipe organs, when they were first developed, imitated wind instruments and, and then brass instruments. And, uh, um, and so that's really what the organ was trying to be, was really it was the first synthesizer. Uh, big theater pipe organs that used to be in the 20s and 30s in, in theaters were f the first synthesizers, except they played real instruments or things that that, that approximated real instruments. Um, so since when synths came out, uh, um, when we just before we started here, we were just talking about the first uh, first National Association of Music Merchants show that I attended like ARP and Moog, and uh, I think that was about it. Yeah, Moog was was sort of the dominant one. I mean, uh, uh, as far as like in the rock musician world. Right, but ARP came along and, and, and was a, a close second. They, they were a follow-up. So it was ARP and Moog, and, and um, those, those were really, they played like organs, in the in in the sense they didn't have a touch sensitive keyboard, uh, but you and a lot of times you could in the early days you could only play one note at a time, um, so you'd have to hook a bunch of them together to get chords, um, and and you could filter this the 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 sound wave so you'd start with a square wave or a sine wave or a pulse wave and then add filters and different attacks uh, to it and you get synthetic sounds, you know, like everything ranging from switch, switched on Bach to Emerson, Lake and Palmer and, and, uh, ELO Stevie and, wonder. Yeah. 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 Pardon me. Yeah. Stevie, Stevie wonder, wonder, you know, uh, there's yeah. this uh, great doc documentary that had Stevie wonder, uh, composing for, um, songs in the key of life. And you see him at the punch block, just like patching in all this really cool stuff. And, you know, that's, that's so analog, but it's cool. Yeah. And, and now, uh, you know, there, there are emulators in all the big software packages and all the big recording packages that, uh, that emulate uh, all the famous synths of history. And uh, I know, I think I've sold all of mine uh, uh, off. Uh, and, and there's such a giant market for them, uh, even when they're not working. You know, I mean, I had a, I had a Profit 5, one of the uh, uh, type 1s, um, and it, I sold it for a bunch of money and it wasn't even operable, you know? So, wow. Wow. Uh, so let me, let, let me take this to the next level. You, you got the basic organ, then you've got the sort of step up to a, a two key, uh, or, or a two keyboard organ, but you could go beyond that with like these Wurlitzer organs. Cause those look like they have three or four keyboards. They have uh, a, a theater, 
a theater pipe organ, and of course, then they made electronic organs to emulate those uh, as they were as they were able technologically. But uh, um, adding, uh, like at, at the uh, at the El Capitan Theater where I'm on staff, we have uh, one of the famous Fox Wurlitzers, which has uh, four keyboards um, and uh, a full 32 note pedal board, um, and that really doesn't make it any harder. And, and by the way, I, I will say very fine pianists can have a lot of trouble playing the organ. So in as much as it's easier for a person to sound good when they're starting out and sound big on an organ that they can't sound as good on a piano. Uh, I don't, I've never seen a lot of pianists uh, cross over to playing the organ really well. Um, but but can you can is it easier for you to cross over from playing an organ with multiple keyboards? Uh, can you sit down at a regular piano and play? It it, it the m- amount of keyboards really makes no difference because uh, ideally you can assign any of the sounds that the organ makes any of the any of the instruments to any of the keyboards at any octave range. So you can have. You can have one note play one note like it would on a piano or on the organ. You can have one note play five octaves or six octaves, you know, on the on the organ. Um, and you, you can have it on multiple instruments. So you can have the organ trumpet, the, the organ flute, the organ uh, strings, you know. So that's why you can get this humongous sound. But still, uh, boy, I, I got to tell you, pianists, it isn't like just you can call any pianist and say, hey, can you come and do this organ gig for me? Right. OK, so uh, you, you brought up the El Capitan, and I think a lot of our listeners have been to the El Capitan for various uh, screenings of Disney films and whatnot. Uh, the El Cap is owned by the Walt Disney Company. Can you give us a little background on the El Capitan Theater? Yeah, the the El Capitan uh, was built in, I think, 1928, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It's sort of the heyday of the movie palaces, right? right? Um, it's a, right in there with Grauman's Chinese Theater. It's on Hollywood Boulevard in Highland, uh, right in the heart of Hollywood. Uh, there was the in Hollywood, there was the Egyptian, the Chinese, and the El Capitan. And the El Capitan was a, a sort of a Spanish. Uh, um, not quite Moorish uh, design. And uh, um, Disney uh, took it over and renovated it in, let's say, 97 or something like that. Is yeah, that, that sounds right? about right. Yeah. And uh, and it never had an organ uh, in it. Uh, oddly enough, it wasn't it wasn't built for it. It was built for live stage productions and film. And um, but Dick Cook, who was the head of uh, Disney Studios at the time, uh, from his childhood in, I think, Wichita, Kansas is where he grew up. Uh, he had these memories of of the great theater going experiences and the, with, along with the theater pipe organ and those kind of organs, you know, the, what you see, the console is just the big control center for all of the sounds. No sound comes out of that. It's all up in the, like in the balconies and in yeah. uh, along in the upper, like where they would normally put loudspeakers. And it it's a real instrument, real pipes or flutes and, and uh, trumpets and, and lower brass and, and, uh, 
And there, when you hear a drum, it's really a drum being hit with a stick. And uh, um, so the El Cap never, but El Cap never had that. And so uh, Dick, uh, you know, charged a, a team to find uh, a great theater pipe organ and, and bring it into the El Cap. And they found one of the famous Fox specials, which uh, the Fox theater chain was a big deal back in the, in the twenties. Um, and they had, a, uh, so they bought, made a deal with the Wurlitzer company because every organ at that point was custom. I mean, you didn't go to an organ store and buy a theater. Organ. Right. Um, so they made a deal with Fox or Fox made a deal with Wurlitzer rather to, provide uh, five identical instruments um, and they got a deal on it and it would fit their needs for what their concept that they wanted at that theater. So it was the San Francisco Fox, the, the um, St. Louis Fox, the Atlanta Fox, the New York, uh, the Times Square, Paramount, uh, um, and the maybe the Brooklyn Paramount or something like that were the, were the five. There were two in New York, I guess, and and then uh, um, the other three. And uh, so this was the F San Francisco Fox that they had pulled out. It was in a private home for a while. They closed, they tore down the, the San Francisco Fox in the 60s, like the mid 60s. And uh, so someone had it and then they, that person passed and they the state sold it and put it in storage or something. So the, so Disney bought it out of storage and it was, it's like thousands of pipes and these giant wind chests that hold the air, these giant blowers. And, and, uh, well, there you go. I, I wanted to hold up a picture uh, just so our listeners uh, understand, but if, if you're listening to this, you should try and Google the George, the uh, it was the George the sixth organ, uh, coronation organ, and and I was really blown away by this picture uh, because of all the pipes that were exposed that you could see here, and uh, I just wanted to show that to you because that's kind of the concept, right? There's the but a lot of those pipes are hidden behind you know, fabric or whatever. Right. Well, in our, in our case, in a theater organ, like that was a, a church installation, but uh, they're, in, they're hidden in chambers uh, up to the upper right and upper left of the stage. Uh, and they have shutters like louver blinds. And, and as you open, as you push down the volume pedal, motors open those shutters to let more sound out. And as you pull the volume pedal back, uh, they do the opposite and close up. And so they don't really, they don't really change the volume very much, but they sort of, they muffle it. They muffle yeah. it a bit. And, yeah. and so it's not exactly like a speaker system uh, that you could turn the volume up and down on, but. Uh, um, and, and each, like you said, each one of these was custom. Obviously Fox made five of the, uh, or the Wurlitzer made five of the same for Fox, but, but generally each venue, it was a custom built system. Yes. And they would be, uh, you know, a small little theater uh, might have a two manual organ, which is about the, you know, the minimum for things. So basically you've got your pedals and your accompaniment on your left hand and your, melody and so on on the right hand uh 
I would say average was a three manual. Um, so, and the, and the reason for the, having the different keyboards is because it also has uh, scores or up to like a hundred presets on it, memory bank things. And think about the technology. This was all done in like the twenties. Yeah. Uh, so no digital technology for this, but they had memory. Um, so you, because there were too many tabs and uh, instruments and sounds to do quick registration changes. Um, it just was impossible to do. So you'd have all these memory banks that you would have to program ahead of time. Um, and the sometimes you couldn't even change that quick enough. So you, that's why you have a third keyboard. So you can be playing a big a big sound on uh, on uh, on the on the top key on the middle keyboard and jump up for a little brass accent on the the top keyboard uh, but then if you have a four, fourth manual you might have bells and flutes set up there so and then five and six manual organs uh, i shouldn't say were commonplace but there are many many five and six manual organs uh, as well and, and those would be in sort of big venues i would imagine yeah, you know, like Chicago Stadium had a six-manual uh, Barton. Um, Wanamaker's department store had a, but it, it it really wasn't necessarily about the size. They weren't any louder. They didn't necessarily have any more instruments uh, on them. But it was just uh, the ability to, to change things quickly without having to use memory presets, and also to do what's called bridging, which is playing on one manual with some fingers and reaching up and playing on the other manual while you're holding one of the other keyboards. <laughs> so, it's, it sounds like you have to almost be a contortionist. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, playing like the El Capitan, I get physically tired. I mean, because you're sort of sitting on this hard bench on your tailbone using both feet, primarily your left foot for the bass pedals, but to get to the higher far right uh, pedals, you have to use your your right foot. And sometimes you're playing melodies and, and counter melodies on the pedals with your feet. And in that sense, you're sort of sitting on your tailbone with your butt holding on the seat, playing the stuff on the pedals. And then you're balancing yourself on any number of keyboards. Sometimes you have the left hand playing on the top keyboard and the right on the bottom, and then it's reversed. And, and uh, it actually, you know, it, it's sort of a, a workout. Yeah. And, and if use if you use everything it's got going for it. And, and you're, are you the only or one of like two house organists at the El Cap? There's a, there's three of us now. There's a Rob Richards and Dean. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Dean. I'm just blanking out your, your last name. Um, um, and, and one other fellow, um, so there, there are three or four of us that sort of, uh, rotate. Rob uh, does most of the time, uh, he's been with them the longest. And, uh, um, I haven't been there in a while because my schedule hasn't permitted me, uh, to, so I'm sort of, uh, absent without official leave, I guess, but, okay. um, uh, um, we, we've, yeah, we've got a, a rotation of people, but it, it's one of those things that there's just not a lot of people around 
either. Yeah. And, and is the LCAP doing uh, the world to Oregon before every presentation? Uh, when well, the, when just, the house weekend, is open? just weekends oh, just now weekends. Or, or just Saturdays and Sundays. They might have cut out Fridays. But when I first started, uh, and that, which was not long after I moved to Los Angeles, um, it was uh, it was five shows a day, seven days a week. Wow. That, that was average. Um, and uh, when we'd have a big show like uh, Nar- Narnia or, or Toy Story or something like that, sometimes we'd have uh, six and seven shows a day. Wow. And, and so on a day where there's six or seven performances, would there be two or three organists rotating no, through? I, I always advocated for that, but un- unfortunately I, I was overridden um, and, uh, that was your call day. So you'd start at nine in the morning, maybe end up at one in the morning. Wow. So that was a long day. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that be, uh, being completely exhausting. Yeah. That that's, those were grinds and so, then to do it the next day, you know? Yeah. Wow. I just getting back to what you were saying about presets. So in the silent movie days, uh, the house organist would actually preset a lot of uh, sounds depending well, on what the movie was. Now it's, it's really the only way to, to maneuver the in, on the instrument. So, so whatever, whatever the program is, you do your presets in advance right. so that you, when you get up there and play, you're, you're sort of hitting the things you need to hit for right. the program. Yes. Yeah, because I I remember somebody saying that that, that they had big notebooks uh, at, at these big theaters where the organist would be able to bring up suspenseful music or thriller music or action or you know those kinds of things that that were would be preset for whatever the movie was that was playing. Yeah, they um, they would there were just generalized books of, uh, of scores, you know, chase scenes and, and love scenes and so on and so forth. Uh, a lot of it was impro- improvised. Um, and then you had the films that would come along with a score, a written score. So yeah. it would, it would, I mean, of course that was before things were able to re- be recorded, but you think of that, it's like, okay, there was somebody still scoring a film uh, and, and they would do that for orchestras, too. You know, there, it was in the big downtown theaters. Sometimes there would be a, a chamber size orchestra with the yeah. organ or just by itself. It, it depended. Uh, but it was all about uh, adding music to the emotion of a film. And uh, when when you look at what's going on in the theater industry today, I mean, how many of these Wurlitzer organs are still out there around the country uh, off the top of your head? Well, there there are, are dozens or a hundred of them in various venues, or maybe it's a hundred and fifty. I mean, there's you know there's it's a fair a amount, amount then. but but no one uses them. The only two that are really regularly professionally used uh, are the El Cap and Radio City, and and, and that's Radio, it really. Radio City is not using it for, uh, you know, showing for films. They use it for, you know, the Christmas spectacular. The the big Christmas show. Yeah. That they do every year with the Rockettes. Right. How how do you, uh, I'm curious how you like uh, sitting on a, uh, on an instrument like that, that's moving because when, when you start the program, you're coming, you're coming up on a lift 
out of the stage. You're, you're, you're rising up and then you're descending back down at the end of your program. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a solid uh, lift. You, you really don't even feel it. So it's a, it's a hydraulic. Right. I mean, right. it's obviously slow moving, but uh, but it's still it, it 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 often amazed me at the El Cap to watch the program start and to see, you know, you heard the music first and then you started to see the organist and the yeah. organ rising up out of the out of the pit, so to speak. Um, it, it always seemed. I don't know. It, it seemed jarring to me. Like, you know, you, here's this guy sitting at this big instrument and, uh, and it's, it, it's actually moving up out of the stage. You know, I, I guess you, well, it's, over it's time like I, you get so you know, used you, to it. Well, and, and uh, you know, I've got enough on my plate not to worry about that. I'm just trying to keep playing. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you have your back to the audience. Yeah. That's actually one of the things that, that I don't like in the sense that it makes you feel removed, you know, I mean, yeah. you can't see what's going on and, and, uh, sometimes you can't feel, you can't feel the audience. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's sort of, sort of a drag and, and, uh, you like to be somewhere in the, in the, in the vibe of, uh, I, I was the official organist at Wrigley field for two years uh, as well. And, uh, that was back in the early eighties and, uh, it was, the organ was up like, underneath the upper deck in Wrigley Field with the press boxes. And I always felt so removed from the fans, boy. And I kept saying, let's let's do a special couple of days and let's put the organ, you know, downstairs, like in behind the third baseline or something like that. Uh, just And we never did it, but we should have done that. But it was, uh, I like to be in the middle of it all. You know? Sure. Well, I, I mean, you're a performer. I mean, you you've performed with Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, Perry Como and Donna Summer, uh, Hal Linden. Uh, you know, you've done Bob Hope shows. So, I, I mean, you know, there you're facing the audience, aren't you? Well, oddly enough, usually playing and conducting, playing the piano, you're usually play, you're usually looking across the stage. Yeah. Okay. Piano, right. And uh, one of the things that I don't like. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> is even if it, if it's playing, you know, a, a party. I mean, I grew up playing like private parties and and of course restaurants and you know all that kind of stuff when I was a kid. Um, and I hate when you go into a place and they have the piano set where the pianist is looking out. Now I like to see the people, but it's no good for the audience to see the pianist or to see the piano and just my face. And they don't get to see my my hands. Yeah. So, you know, really the perfect way for a piano is really sideways because then you can see in your peripheral vision to the right, the audience to the left, the orchestra, that's what you're with. Uh, and then people can still see you and your hands. That's well, the way to do it. I, I, you know, I remember many years ago seeing the Piano Man concert with Elton John and Billy Joel. Yeah. And, and they had the pianos kind of tucked together sideways. So you right. could actually see them moving. You know, you could see their hands moving on the keys. Right. And also what, one of my pet peeves is, well, who in that one, uh, who was on the on the stage left? Um, would, would, it would have been Elton John. Elton John was stage left because that really drives me nuts. Like I almost can't play the wrong way. Like look from the stage left, looking across stage, right. 
it's like backwards because if I look out over my left hand and see the audience, it's like the piano lid opens up to the back of the stage. It's just, everything is backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I do, uh, uh, feel for you because I mean, as an artist, you, you, you want to get that visceral reaction from the audience. You, yeah. you, you, you want to get a sense. You want to be able to turn your head and see them out there. And you don't really get to do that when your back is to everybody completely. Right. And right. and is there any way to change that with the Wurlitzer organs? No. Is there, there's no way to, to make that Wurlitzer organ on its side, like the side no. view of it. No. Um, and traditionally organs just uh, like, they're, well, they're so big uh, and they were built to, to look like that so that people can see the whole thing. If you play a, you know, a Hammond organ or something like that, you can do that sideways, yeah. you know? Um, so I do that when I do a jazz organ gig or something. You know, what we're going to have uh, to do, Ed, is we're going to have to put a tablet or some kind of webcam on the back so you can see the, the look of the people when you play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I, uh, I, I've done it where I've, I've been in, I used to play at this uh, place in the Valley that was a, really a, a hot jazz club for several years, Charlie O's. Uh, and they had it set up like a piano bar. Okay. Uh, like typically with my front to the bar people uh, sitting at the piano bar, but then there was a stage behind me where with, for the bass and drums. So my back was to them and the, and we used to have guest artists every Friday and Saturday. I played Thursday, Friday, Saturdays. Friday and Saturday, we'd have a guest artist and he or she would be playing their horn or singing on the stage behind me. And I couldn't see anything, you know, because and that was just the only way the owner wanted it set up. And I guess there was no other room or whatever. So I ended up doing a mirror and it was like a rear view mirror because I needed to see what was behind me because I needed to see what the artist was, whoever the featured artist was, what they were doing and and uh, and I was a side man on it. So as far as like cutting off tunes or counting off tunes, I had to watch the leader, John Hurd. And and uh, that was that was sort of wacky. Like, yeah, uh, I, I was driving I, a bus, you know, I, I would think that especially with jazz, because you're kind of playing off of each other, aren't you? To some oh, degree. Yeah. So you to really every, you better be to every degree. <laughs> yeah. And so that that would seem really difficult to have your back to the other musicians. Yeah, yeah, it was it was weird, you know, um, for a jazz gig. Once again, I think originally he had been toying with having a piano bar. So, he, you know, had this whole bar built, you know, how they do that around the shape of. Now, the fun part of that was uh, I was close to the people. Yeah. You could kibitz with the people in between song because, you know, it was, a, it was a casual thing and uh, had a ball. In the sense, yeah. of like you know, hanging, you're hanging with the audience. Then it's it's the opposite extreme. How is the jazz club scene in Los Angeles? Do you, do you feel like it's it's down it's, up? It's it's, it's it's vibrant. It's way down. It's way down. Uh, you know, when I moved here 25 years ago, um, I used to hear the stories of how it was down from the good old days, like when Dante's and, and, uh, and Jimmy Smith's and, uh, um, the one I know of is the baked potato, the baked potato. Well, that's still there. That's, that's still, there. still there. Right. Yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, but, 
so we had, you know, maybe there was half a dozen things that, that we would play. There was an after hours Japanese place, the M club downtown, uh, that used to go to like, uh, we used to play till two and it used to go to four or five, uh, in the morning. But, um, you know, everything changes and, and, uh, I guess now there are new things that pop up, but I'm not, you know, out in that scene really anymore as I was when I first moved to town, I was like, you know, the phone would ring and I'd be there kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, so now I'm into other stuff, but, um, it, the whole jazz COVID just sort of decimated whatever was left of almost anything, you know? So it's, things are still going through a rebuild. I, I was going to say, do you feel like there, there's sort of a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 an up and down within uh, the various genres of music, you know, sort of a, uh, uh, you might be in a, in a bit of a valley now with jazz, but. Uh, but well, it comes I, I think it's out. about the people. I think it's about the audiences. You know, people just don't go out the way they used to. Yeah. Uh, the um, club scene is different. Absolutely. The restaurant scene is different, you know, um, yeah. uh, just people used to, it was more vibrant and, and people just did more things out together. Now um, it's, it's pretty um, pedestrian, I think. Do you think that, do you think that's ripe for a rebirth at some point where you get more of these kind of cabaret style jazz clubs? It always could be, but what I keep finding is that audiences, newer audiences don't know what they're listening for or don't know what they're listening to. They, they don't, they, they don't even know how to listen. Yeah. Uh, I even find that with them listening to recordings and things. I mean, I think just the, they don't listen the same way that I did growing up in the business or that you did or why it, it's a, uh, like culturally, just things are, are very, um, it's, it's, I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to be like, it's going to cycle around. You, you, don't, you, you don't think what's old is new again. I mean, there, there seemed to have been a resurgence of big band music for a while. You know, you had, you had uh, Brian Setzer and his orchestra right. uh, and, and sort of bringing back that big sound. Yeah. But uh and and that I mean, and nothing will ever do away with great, you know, when something's great or good. Uh, but we did uh, just before the pandemic hit, we did a CD album kickoff uh, event at the City Winery, Chicago City Winery in Chicago, with a big band for this artist, for this the singer that I work with, Josephine Weavers, and uh, City Winery has a chain of eight venues it's a proscenium venue so it, it's like a stage with you know with a ramp elevated floor and and they seat about 250 people and we had a big band and josephine and the management of the place now this so this is like a big happening dinner club entertainment venue they said wow we've never had a band in here like that before and i thought really they never had a big band in, and it's a perfect room for a big yeah. band how could that have been? But uh, um, so I don't, I don't know what's uh, what no, to expect, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of, I, I feel like um, when it comes to the taste of music and people who listen to appreciate music, that it's just not, um, 
while it could swing back around, I think that there seems to be maybe, and I love jazz. It's great. Um, I studied music and I, I love it. But I think there seems to be like like wine tasting almost, that there's a barrier for some people because they believe it might be uh, maybe a little bit too highbrow for them. Like something needs to happen in order to make it more accessible for uh, other people to enjoy jazz uh, because they feel like it's, you know, maybe beyond their scope or, you know, their taste. Well, that's a, that's a good point. I think um, too much, uh, well, there, there, jazz has too many different um sort of subcategories and categories. And uh, a lot of it is not uh, accessible to your average person unless they've been around it and, you know, are real enthusiasts, just as, uh, just as uh, like a lot of, uh, of rock genre things are, are not, uh, but we, I've, I've had a lot of occasion to, to do, like say even a piano trio jazz concert and people were dragged to it by other people. And I would say my, my jazz uh, at, at, at it left to its own devices is that I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty straight ahead. You know, it's nothing very challenging to anybody. Uh, and people coming up to me and saying, Oh, if this is jazz, I love this. You know, and I mean, and we would do all the same things. I mean, drum solos and bass solos and extended things. And so it wasn't like it was just cocktail jazz or something like that. But but people don't even know what jazz is. They might think it's Ornette Coleman, you know, or or, or even um, um, John Coltrane or something it can be too aggressive for some people. And uh, whereas uh, Dizzy Gillespie and, and Charlie Parker or Miles is very accessible to them. So, um, Oh, I think that the, the, I think you hit it on the head. I think the point is exposing people maybe at a younger age to what different genres of music are and what to really listen, you know, and critically listen to things because I don't think people teach critical listening anymore. They don't teach the understanding or the appreciation. I remember going to school, having music appreciation, and having critical listening and different things like that. Of course, you know, I come from a music background, but I think part of that is now, if you're listening to this show, if you have others involved here, you can just have uh, and teach it and say, like, let's sit down and let's listen to different genres of music and see what you can pick out of it. And, you know, I'm sure when my kids are of age, they'll, they'll learn to appreciate it as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's all about exposure and and uh... and I I think part of the problem is is that you know over the last couple decades the arts have been decimated in public school, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, and uh, you know not only the visual arts but but music as well, uh, but we are going to get into uh, some more uh, conversation with Ed Vidica, uh next week when we start to talk about uh, the musician's green book. Uh, And uh, Ed, I want to thank you for being on the show this week. Uh, And we look forward to having you back next week. I look forward to being here. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. The life of Ed Vodica, Dave. And uh, what a great guy. I and mean, he's done so much um, in the world of jazz and entertainment now. And he's just 
not just your typical uh, musician. He's done a lot. Oh, no. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with him. He's such a nice guy. And uh, I, I have to say, I always enjoy talking to people like Ed because I get to ask a lot of questions about music. And, you know, we were we were talking a little bit about jazz and we're going to be talking more about jazz in the part two of this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just I mean, couldn't have been a nicer man. And really uh, listening to him talk about the world of Oregon. Wow. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Very cool stuff indeed. And once again, uh, feel free, everybody to like, share and subscribe to this show. We would appreciate it. Part two next week with Ed is going to be amazing. So be on the lookout for that when it drops. We drop our shows every Monday. So be sure you like, share, and subscribe to the show everywhere you get podcasts. Leave us those five-star reviews, too. We would appreciate it. Everything helps. And you can leave us those voicemails, too, in the show notes there at Spotify Podcast. Follow us on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, In LinkedIn, you can follow Dave and myself under our names. That'd be great. And uh, send us those emails, aljohn or dave at skullrockpodcast.com. Do me a favor, too. Follow me on Instagram, Go. And our sister show there, Dining at Disney Podcast. That's what I do with my wife every single week, two shows a week. Dave, you've got the final word. Well, uh, I want to make sure everybody realizes that this coming Thursday, May 25th, is the 90th anniversary of the Three Little Pigs. Uh, and I will be doing a Facebook Live event with Neil from the wonderful world of animation yeah and we're going to spend an hour talking about three little pigs and all of the behind the scenes and uh cool stuff who worked on it who the animators were the music how popular that music was in the 1930s and we're also going to talk a little bit and i'm going to tell some uh a little behind the scenes story about uh, a scene that had to be reanimated in the late 1940s Uh, So you'll hear all about that on Facebook Live this Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, Just go to my Facebook page on uh, just go to my Facebook, Dave Bossert Facebook page, and you will be able to find out more about that Facebook Live event. And I also wanted to mention that our friends at the Old Mill Press they just launched a brand new website. Yes. So check out the new Old Mill Press website. Uh, which is pretty cool, actually. I, I really liked it. I like it uh, too. Yeah. And with that, Al John, I'm going to say go out and have a fantastic week. All of our listeners, be good to one another. Wake up in the morning, say something positive and good to the first person you see. I love it. All right. And we'll see you back here next Monday, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney 
cruise, Disney park trip, adventures by Disney. They can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com.